If you look at the sermon notes sheet in your bulletin this week, which is on the backside of the corporate confession of sin, you should see the four questions. In addition, if you look at the sermon outline page, you will see the four questions embedded within the outline. Today, there's none are front-loaded. They're all near the end of the message. But before I start this message in our survey of the book of Genesis, let's do a quick review of last week's message. Last time, we picked up our survey in chapter 36, and we made it all the way to the middle of chapter 45, where Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. The title of today's message is Why Beginnings Matter, Part 3. And just like the last two messages, we could ask it as a question. Do beginnings matter? And if so, why do beginnings matter? And just like last week, the answer is the beginning of a thing may hint at its eventual destination, especially if there is a grand overall plan that includes every detail of all things in the plan, which our God does marvelously. After only a mention of the fact that chapter 36 gives a genealogy of the descendants of Esau, we began in chapter 37, where we saw how Israel's oldest sons were so jealous of the favoritism that their father showed towards Rachel's firstborn son, Joseph, that they were ready to murder him when his father merely sent him to check in on them because they were pastoring his father's flock near Shechem. We also saw that God gave Joseph prophetic dreams about his mother, father, and his brothers, and how those dreams made his brothers hate him so much that they initially wanted to kill him, but then decided to sell him to a caravan of Ishmaelite traders that were headed towards Egypt. And do you remember whose idea that was? It was Jacob's idea. Jacob, uh, sorry, Judah, Judah's idea. Judah was the one who decided to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Judah, who in chapter 38 behaved in ungodly ways, whose son Perez was born out of an illicit prostitutional encounter with his daughter-in-law Tamar. Judah, who had had to admit that Tamar was more righteous than he had been because he had failed to keep his word to her. Judah, the one through whom the Christ, the Messiah of the Jewish nation and Savior of the elect, would be born. At this point in the story of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Judah is getting D-minuses and Fs on his report card. Then in chapter 39, Moses resumed the story of Joseph in Egypt. Potiphar, the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, bought Joseph from the Ishmaelite caravan that took him down to Egypt. And we read that the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house for Joseph's sake. And Potiphar quickly put him in charge of everything that he owned. But because Joseph would not give in to the advances of Potiphar's wife, she decided that if she couldn't enjoy him, she would destroy him. And so she accused him of making advances on her when, in fact, she was the true predatory criminal. Of course, then Potiphar put Joseph into the king's prison. But even while he was in prison, we saw that God's plan for Joseph had not been shelved because we read, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, God makes everything that Joseph does successful. And soon he is in charge of the prison with no one above him except for the warden. 
Then in chapter 40, we saw how Joseph interpreted the dreams of the Pharaoh's chief baker and cupbearer. And both of Joseph's interpretations came true. Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him when he was restored to his position so that he might finally get out of prison. But, of course, the cupbearer forgot him. Until two years later. In chapter 41, Pharaoh had two very disturbing dreams, but none of his magicians or wise men had any idea what those dreams meant. It was only then that the cupbearer remembered. He remembered Joseph and told Pharaoh about his uncanny ability to accurately interpret dreams. So Pharaoh summons Joseph. Joseph so confidently and convincingly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams that Pharaoh created a brand new position, second in command, with no one above him except for Pharaoh himself, so that Joseph could oversee the food storage program during the seven years of plenty in preparation for the seven years of famine that were to follow immediately thereafter. Then in chapter 42, the seven years of plenty had passed, and they were only two years into the seven years of famine. And Jacob told his sons to go down to Egypt and buy some grain. But Jacob kept Rachel's second son, Benjamin, there at home with him because he was afraid that something might happen to him. Since, as far as he knew, Joseph had already died 15 years earlier. So Jacob sent his 10 oldest sons to Egypt to buy food for him and the rest of the families, which had grown to 70 people by this time. Well, when the ten brothers arrived in Egypt to buy grain, Joseph recognizes them and remembered his dream about their sheaves of grain bowing down to his sheaf when he sees his brothers bow down before him. Joseph accused them of being spies because his brothers had accused him of spying on them for their father when he came looking for them at Dothan. Remember, as they were ready to kill him before they decided to sell him to the Ishmaelite traders headed to Egypt, as if he were nothing more than a cheap piece of merchandise. Remember what they said to themselves? We will see what will become of his dreams. Well, they were seeing, and right before their own eyes, that Joseph's dreams indeed did come true, even if they didn't see it at the moment. Joseph interrogated them, then decided to keep Simeon there in Egypt while the rest of them went back to fetch their younger brother Benjamin in order to verify their story. Also, the brothers openly confessed their crimes against Joseph in his very hearing and admitted that their present distress was God's judgment on them for mistreating their brother the way they did. Here we see the miracle of irresistible grace. The eye of a class five tulip hurricane. The heads of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, although wicked, obstinate, godless men, are being irresistibly brought to repentance by the omnipotent, omnipotent Holy Spirit through his providential wise guidance of their godly younger brother, Joseph, the one that they had hated so much just a decade and a half earlier. In verse 36 of chapter 42, we see the high point of Jacob's despair and agony, where we read, And Jacob their father said, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. For you see, God was molding and shaping Jacob's character, using the pain and hardships of his life to sanctify him and eventually turn him into a man of God worthy be called the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham, the father of the faith. 
Then in chapter 43, when they finally run out of the grain that Joseph gave them in Egypt, their father tells them to go buy some more grain. But Judah reminds him that if Benjamin is not with them, the Lord of the land will not sell them any more grain. Meanwhile, everyone apparently forgot that Simeon, one of the notorious butchers of Shechem, was being held without bail in Egypt. Judah finally began to demonstrate an inkling of the godly character fitting for his position in the lineage of Christ as he pledged to his father that he would safely bring Benjamin back from Egypt or bear the blame alone forever. When they return to Egypt with Benjamin, Joseph has a feast for his brothers. Then in chapter 44, Joseph gives them the final test. And when he decrees that Benjamin must stay behind in Egypt, but that the rest of them are free to return home, Judah demonstrated sacrificial selflessness when he offered to remain in Egypt in the place of Benjamin. Once Joseph saw Judah demonstrate true God-honoring repentance, he could no longer keep his identity secret from his brothers. So in chapter 45, Joseph finally told his brothers who he was and made the most famous biblical declaration of God's sovereign, providential, loving kindness. Even though they intended only evil against Joseph, God had intended it for their eventual good. This was also the most vivid foreshadowing of how the murder of Christ, the only innocent man, the only man upon whom death had no claim, how that wicked murder was actually intended and used by God to save us from our sins. Well, this brings us to where we left off in last week's message. Picking up in chapter 45, I'm going to read verses 4 through 15. Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 15. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has already been in the land these two years. And there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you, many survivors. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up, up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now you see... Now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin sees, that it is my mouth that is speaking to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. What a glorious reunion. Well, if we move into chapter 46, Israel, a.k.a. Jacob the usurper, begins his journey to Egypt to go to see his son Joseph and to spend his final days on earth. 
His caravan stopped in Beersheba for the night, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Chapter 46, verses 2 through 4 read as follows. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. The next day they resumed their trip to Egypt. Moses then gives us the genealogical record of all the descendants of Israel who came down into Egypt. Then in chapter 47, Joseph first introduces five of his brothers to Pharaoh, and then his father Jacob. The rest of the chapter tells how the Egyptians have to sell everything that they have for food, and then eventually all of their animals, and eventually their land, and finally they have to sell themselves into slavery. But Israel settled in the land of Goshen. And in verse 27, we read, they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. There could be a, a, a cause for jealousy of the Egyptians a little later on. Having sold themselves into slavery and all these people in Goshen are prospering. And at the end of the chapter, Jacob made Joseph promise not to bury him in Egypt. And moving into chapter 48, Jacob is about to die. And so Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob for his paternal blessing. But Jacob claims the boys as his before giving them his blessing. And if we read in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 48, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What a wonderful blessing. Well, and as we move into chapter 49, Jacob blesses all 12 of his sons. We find those blessings in verses 2 through 27, where we read detailed prophecies about the the future of each of the 12 men. Some of the prophecies are very short indeed. For Benjamin, Naphtali, Asher, Gad, and Zebulun, their futures are described in only a single verse. The glimpse into the futures of Reuben and Issachar are only two verses each. Simeon and Levi only get three verses between the two of them. The longest prophecies are given to Joseph and Judah, with each one being five verses long. But none of them, none of them, none of them, not even a single one of the prophecies mention the prediction that God gave to their great-grandfather Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. If you turn to Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to read verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
What an ominous glimpse into a very long, dark valley that the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have to pass through. 400 years of afflicted servitude before God would bring them back to inherit the promised land. Brothers and sisters, I don't care how you try to spin it. That is one very long prison sentence. Now, I know that we must be very careful about trying to identify correlating cause and effect relationships between sin and disease, affliction and death. Because in, this com- in the complex interactions of people, places, things and events in this world, we are most, more often than not unable to clearly identify singular irrefutable causes of particular events. But God doesn't have that problem. He can and he often does in Scripture. For instance, do you recall the account of Jesus healing the man who was born blind that we read about in John chapter 9? The Gospel of John chapter 9 verses 2 and 3 read, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I ask you, were Jesus' disciples mistaken in assuming that the root cause of the man's blindness was his sin or the sin of his parents? They certainly had some basis for this assumption, for the scriptures. From the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 onward, make it abundantly clear that the reason suffering, disease, and death exist in this world is only as the consequence of sin. So the disciples' suspicion that sin was in some way the cause of this man's affliction were not without warrant, especially as we consider the numerous examples we find in the Bible of various diseases, afflictions, and even death that are clearly the result of specific acts of sin. For example, in the book of Numbers, God afflicted Moses' sister Miriam with leprosy because she questioned Moses' rule as God, Moses' role as God's spokesman. As a result of David's sin against Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah, God took the life of the first child that Bathsheba bore to David. That child died as a result of God's judgment of David's sin, not because of anything the child did. Uzzah. Uzzah died as soon as he touched the Ark of the Covenant. And Nadab and Abihu, they both died immediately when they attempted to offer strange fire before the Lord. So were Jesus' disciples wrong in suspecting of the man who had been born blind that his blindness was because of his sins or those of his parents? No. But they did make the mistake of particularizing the general relationship between sin and suffering. Their first error, their first error was an error in deductive reasoning. Jesus' disciples had apparently forgotten one of the main object lessons from the book of Job, which is about an upright man, much like Noah was in his day. Job was a righteous, godly man who was severely afflicted by Satan with God's permission but not in direct correlation to any specific sin, but in a sense that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
For you see, Jesus' disciples assumed that there had to be a simple, single, direct cause and effect relationship between the sin of the man or his parents and the affliction of the man's having been born blind. They posed their question to Jesus in an either-or fashion, but only with two options, A or B. In doing so, their second error was that they committed the logical fallacy of the false dilemma, assuming that the sin of the man or the sin of his parents were the only two possible causes of his blindness. So we could say that the disciples' second error was one of oversimplification. Because they only considered two possible direct causes, two options only, they failed to consider that there might be many more complexly interrelated factors that produce the effect of the man being born blind. But more importantly, that those complex factors were decreed and ordained by God as an overarching higher level cause, what we might call, call a meta-cause. The definition of a meta-cause would be the intention of God by decree that produces all secondary causes, all of them, including sin. And the overarching cause of his blindness was, as Jesus so clearly told them, a meta-cause that the works of God might be displayed in him. Such meta-causes can so greatly overshadow the importance of the secondary causes that they occasionally render them relatively insignificant. And that is what Jesus did when he answered his disciples the way he did in verse 3. He exercised his divine prerogative in declaring a meta-cause as the primary overarching reason that the man had been born blind. However, as we have also already seen, there would be no disease, affliction, or death in the world if not for sin. And we know that God does not wink at sin, for all sin must be punished. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The prophet Nahum tells us in, verse, in chapter 1 and verse 3 of his prophecy, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. In the prophecy of Jacob for Simeon and Levi, in Genesis 49, 5-7, we read, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." When through Jacob the prophet, God says of Simeon and Levi, weapons of violence are their swords, and, and in their anger they killed men, and then cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I suspect that we might be able to paraphrase what God was saying in other words, perhaps something like this. I have not forgotten your unwarranted sin against your neighbor Shechem and the men of his city, I will not be mocked, even though the Messiah will one day pay the legal penalty for your sins against them. Your sanctification and the sanctification of your children to the third and fourth generation of those who have hated me and despised my righteous ways, that sanctification will require a chastening 
and that chastening will be 400 years of affliction by and bondage to the Egyptians. For you see, in the economy of God, nothing is vestigial, nor is anything wasted. All things that God has decreed and ordained demonstrate his eternal power and divine nature. And of course, they almost always serve multiple purposes too. For instance, God can chasten the children of Israel in Egypt for 400 years and then use their deliverance via Moses to foreshadow what the salvation that Christ will accomplish will look like, while additionally demonstrating God's almighty power to take down the strongest emperor in the world at the time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, I cannot prove my speculative assertion that the 400 years of bondage in Egypt was a direct effect of the results from the sins of Israel and his offspring. But I don't need to prove that because it is consistent with the fact that God sent both Israel and Judah into foreign captivity because of their obstinate sinfulness. And the fact that they refused to heed the warnings of the prophets who told them that judgment from God was coming if they did not repent of their sins and turn from their wicked ways. And if you were to say to me, well, Jacob's sons didn't have any prophets telling them to repent of their sins. My response would be, ah, but they did. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sins against Joseph. And then their own father prophesied against them as well. When he said of Simeon and Levi, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. For although Simeon and Levi alone perpetrated the actual physical slaughter of the men of Shechem, we don't read that their father or any of their brothers admonished or reprimanded them for their wicked behavior. Vengeance is God's. He will repay Simeon and Levi took vengeance, which belongs to God alone, into their own hands and played God by meeting out unjustified punishment on many men who did nothing wrong at all. So I think that we can see in this prophetic denouncement of Simeon and Levi that legally their brothers and even their father could be considered accessories to the treacherous crimes of the butchers of Shechem because they did nothing to oppose or correct them. And thus, by their complicity, they were almost as guilty as if they had actually participated in the slaughter themselves. Theirs may have been a sin of omission instead of commission, but it was virtually as grievous as the actual deed nonetheless. But what is more important than my interpretation of these passages in Genesis 15 and Genesis 49 is their relevance to us today in this period of history that we live in. For we are under the shadow of a far more ominous threat of chastisement than the one that was ahead for the children of Israel. According to the most recent statistical data, America is not only allowed but is encouraged through the expenditure of taxpayer dollars the wholesale slaughter of over 64 million defenseless, helpless infants within the wombs of their mothers since the Roe versus Wade decision of the Supreme Court made abortion legal in the U.S. in 1973. 64 million 
defenseless babies allowed to be routinely, systematically butchered with high-tech industrial precision, murdered by doctors and nurses who take a Hippocratic oath to do no harm in their practice. 64 million. That's more than double the number of people that Lenin and Stalin killed during their reign of terror following the fake Bolshevik revolution. And it is only barely surpassed by the high-end estimation of the number of people that Mao killed in his great leap leap forward slash cultural revolution. How much greater chastisement will be due to us for our sanctification because of this inexcusable atrocity, this most horrific nightmarish form of human sacrifice than the chastisement which God gave to the children of Israel for the sins of Jacob and his undisciplined sons. God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. For we have sown the wind, and we are about to reap the whirlwind. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, Moses told the people with regards to God's zeal for justice. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. In Matthew 25 and verse 40, Jesus declares, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Brothers and sisters, Our hands are stained with the blood of aborted babies, much like the hands of Lady Macbeth, no less than if we had done the killing ourselves. For as Jesus said in his recounting to us of what the final judgment will be like, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. The first question on the notes page of your bulletin and on the sermon outline reads, what was the subject of the message? The answer is, What shall happen to us in the days to come? Genesis 49, verse 1. Near the end of the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Starting in verse 49. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth. And from the verses that follow, we understand that that fire that he was alluding to was first a fire of persecution against the elect to proclaim the truth of the gospel. But that persecution will eventually result in the fiery indignation of his holy justice, when the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out in the just punishment of the wicked for their sins, after the final judgment has been rendered. In verse 56 of Luke 12, Jesus asks what sounds like a rhetorical question. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Then in verse 59, he follows up with a declaration of righteous judgment by saying, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Then in the beginning of chapter 13, in verse 1, we read, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And then we read, and he answered them. 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, we read, For the time is coming that judgment must begin at the house of God. The second question on the notes page of your bulletin, the sermon handout reads, What response did the message ask of me? The answer, repent, for the time is come that the judgment must begin at the house of God. Again, in 1 Peter, but this time in chapter 5, in verse 6, we read, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The third question on the notes page of your bulletin and on the sermon outline reads, Was a how-to given to me for for me to respond appropriately? The answer is, I must thoroughly examine myself, repent of my specific sins, and humble myself under the mighty hand of God. Lastly, the fourth question on the notes page of your bulletin, or on the sermon outline, was, reads, was a time frame given for how long the how-to might take to complete this task? Well, as always, this is the hardest question to answer. However, I urge each and every one of you not to procrastinate, but to be diligent in examining yourselves, to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance as he leads you to repent, as he softens your heart, as he helps mortify the old nature and humbles you so that you more closely resemble the most humble man who ever walked on the face of the earth. No, not Moses. Jesus of Nazareth, the lowly Lamb of God, who selflessly took our sins upon himself to make atonement for them. Brothers and sisters, please don't put this off. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is not in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So, Why do beginnings matter? Because the beginning of a thing may hint at its eventual destination. May our destinations be to pass through whatever awaits us in days to come and persevere in the faith so that we arrive in the promised land of God's kingdom to live with him forever in the new Jerusalem. Let us pray. Oh God, you know how difficult, how virtually impossible it is for us to rightly evaluate ourselves without your opening our spiritual eyes to see the true state of our innermost being. Humble our hearts by convicting us of our sins. Make us truly remorseful and repentant of those sins that we might earnestly forsake them and turn wholeheartedly to you. Help us know that our calling and election in Jesus is genuine. Remove any shadow of doubt from those who waver and give them your assurance. Prune us that we not remain barren. Make us bear much fruit for your glory. Renew not only our minds, but also our heart attitudes so that we do what is right with the greatest joy and not merely out of dutiful obligation, but out of the deepest gratitude to you for your selfless sacrifice on our behalf. 
Prepare us, Lord, for our final destination with you. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Enable us to more easily trust you without hesitancy or reservation. Make us more eager to obey you in each and every new circumstance we face. Make growth and holiness become our highest priority in this life. Help us deepen our devotion to you so that we are ready for what shall happen to us in the days to come. Preserve us in the faith that we might persevere to the end. Amen.